0: Welcome everyone to Kremlin File. And today we're going to be welcoming Ambassador Dan Freed to the show. He's the former ambassador to Poland. He's also on the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And in the course of his 40-year foreign service career, Ambassador Freed played a key role in designing and implementing American policy in Europe. So without any further ado, Let's welcome Ambassador Fried to the pod. Ambassador Fried, welcome. Welcome to Kremlin File. Thank you. The Deputy Prime Minister of Poland has just harshly criticized Orban over his dead-end stance, quote-unquote, on Russia. He slammed Orban uh, for his continuing support for Putin uh, and also about blocking weapons to Ukraine and for considering Zelensky his opponent, will Poland's let's say unusual uh, it, it's unusual criticism for Orban? Do you think that this will help t- for uh, to help Orban revisit his position on Ukraine? What is your view?
1: I would welcome anything that would convince Viktor Orban to as you say, revisit his position on Ukraine, which is basically, at at best, it's chilly and disdainful. At worst, he sides with Putin. This is Orban. Now, many American and West European commentators tend to lump in Poland and Hungary together because they, they both have governments that are right-wing and populist, and they both fought with the European Union over issues of culture and sometimes the rule of law. However, commentators overlook some pretty big differences between the two countries. First, Poland's democratic institutions are in far better shape than those of Hungary. The Senate in Poland is in is controlled by the liberal opposition. A major there's a major um, nationwide television network in Poland, Tafalen, which most people regard as which is certainly independent and many people regard as leaning opposition. I think they're a quality network, but they're there. And the president of Poland has been taking some rather important steps. Seemingly moving Polish politics, or at least using his influence to move Polish politics more toward the center on some culture issues, relations with the EU, relations with the United States, and media freedom. Now, look, Polish politics can be complicated. There are different views. But this is before we get to the issue of Ukraine and Putin. In Poland, there's essentially a national consensus from left to right in support of Ukraine. The liberals, the the government parties, everybody supports Ukraine. Everybody regards Vladimir Putin as a threat. This is pretty much a national cause. And Poland, both the government and society, has welcomed the Ukra- over two and a half million Ukrainian refugees to Poland. It's a national cause. My Polish friends and Polish politicians have all taken in Ukrainian refugees into their homes. I've never seen anything like it. It's a national cause. The Poles are absolutely right on both humanitarian grounds and strategic grounds to regard Putin's invasion of Ukraine, his ongoing war as a threat to Europe, a threat to Poland, a threat to the common Western values that we've all signed up to protect. All right. So there... That's what's going on. That puts Poland at odds with Hungary. And this tension has been growing for some time, but it has become acute after the February 24th and Putin's escalation of his ongoing, his post-2014 invasion of Ukraine. And the Poles, I think, have been wrestling with the fact that they can either have a kind of ideological based right wing alliance with Viktor Orbán or they can resume their role as the bulwark of the western alliance and in some sense you know defender of Ukraine and Ukraine's best friend can't do both it's harder to do both so this is not a surprise and I'm Glad to see that Poland is pushing back on Hungary at the same time that there are some signs that Poland's politics are moving back toward the center right as opposed to the hard right. Now it's more complicated. No doubt, if you talk to somebody in Poland, they would give you a, you know, all kinds of you know complicating arguments, and their arguments would could be based on real facts. But I'm trying to give my sense of what this means and to put it into context. Orban won re-election. The fact that now the polls, after Orban's re-election, are publicly pushing at him may have the be- may give the benefit of convincing Orban not to block EU decisions that about increase sanctions against Russia. That may be an immediate impact. And I wish the poles luck. They're doing the right thing for the right reason. Thank you,
2: Ambassador. Yeah, I mean, they've they've uh, the polls have been incredible in both their support for Ukraine and you know allowing weapons to flow through Poland to Ukraine in the humanitarian yeah. corridors that they've opened, and speak- add some risk to themselves. Absolutely, at a lot of risk because I mean we even saw you know uh, Medvedev come out and basically threaten Poland, and we've seen a lot of increased rhetoric in Russian state media against Poland. Well- so- that's
1: exactly right. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Medvedev's threats against Poland came out when I was in Warsaw two weeks ago. And the Poles understood what this meant. I mean, they understood that they could be attacked, but they're not pulling back. Um, this, The Poles are serious about this stuff. And of course, the United States has backed them. President Biden was absolutely right to make his trip to Poland. And What that trip did was seal a wartime alliance. That's pretty staggering. We're not at war. Poland and the U.S. are not at war, but the war exists right over the border. And that alliance is not just talk, it's operational because Poland is the logistic base for support of Ukraine's fight against the Russians, against Russian aggression. That is a big deal. And we've got to start thinking of this as a wartime alliance. Absolutely. Bad, bad business.
2: Absolutely. Speaking of um, the humanitarian efforts, we have seen Poland as the primary country who's accepted the most refugees from Ukraine. And we've seen, I mean, besides welcoming and opening, you know, their homes, they are uh, uh, welcoming children into schools. And we've seen just like this pressure, their population increased around, what, 30% in a matter of a month. And their resources are being strained. Are you seeing uh, Europe and U.S. offering, you know, some kind of support to ease what is happening there with everything that they are doing, you know, to support Ukraine, Ukrainians, and, and providing them housing, school, food, and medicine,
1: and everything else that they've done? It's a, the influx of over two and a half million Ukrainian refugees is obviously putting a strain on Polish resources. They're behaving magnificently, both the government and civil society. Dealing with a very tough problem. Um, if the war ends soon. Let's say. I'm making this up next month. If the if the Ukrainians can blunt. Or best case defeat. The coming Russian offensive in the Donbas, And if Putin settles both of which are highly. You know that's. Not clear. I would say there's even that that's a minority chance, but a significant one. If that happens and the war ends with a negotiated settlement, all these refugees will go home, or most of them. If they're from Mariupol, they may stay while the city is being rebuilt. I don't know, but most of them will go back. They want to go back. But if not, in this somewhat greater chance of a prolonged war, a war of attrition, you know, goes on for months, goes on for years. In that case, Poland will have a difficulty absorbing all these people. It just, the, you know, the schools, the housing, it's it's hard. And they will need help from the EU, the, U, the U.S., the U.N., and other countries will have to step up. Now, I'm not critical of other countries. There are a lot of Ukrainian refugees arriving in Germany and in other West European countries. So Poland's not the only one. <clears throat> I wish the U.S. were offering more than 100,000 slots for Ukrainian immigrants. That's not law. I mean, come on, folks. We ought to do better than that. Right? Really, 100,000? I know immigration politics is complicated, but we should do better. Especially, these are all problems, you know, we're going to face soon. And especially with
2: the fact that, you know, that there is a huge, huge Ukrainian diaspora in U.S. I mean, you know, all of us would welcome Ukrainians coming in, so it wouldn't even put that much resources, pressure. And And Canada,
1: absolutely. Look, I don't know where the debate is in the U.S. government. I, I, I know immigration politics is complicated, but your point is right. Yeah, we need to help these folks.
0: Yeah, 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 100,000 is not a large number.
1: Now, to be fair, it may be that a lot of the Ukrainian refugees don't want to come to the U.S. They want to stay closer to home where they can drive back if there's peace, which is something I totally understand.
0: Um, Ambassador, do you feel that France and Germany should have done more, should be doing more, or can we leave things the way they are now?
1: They are moving, particularly the Germans, are moving at lightning speed given where they were and given the usual pace of decision-making on such matters. But it's a wartime situation, at least for the Ukrainians, but I think for Europe also. And I would like to see faster movement on one big issue, which is restriction restrictions on purchases of Russian oil and gas. That's not easy. And it's easy for the U.S. to talk about it because we're not as dependent. Nevertheless, Putin is about to push with another attack on Ukraine, another offensive in the Donbass. He may be seeking a victory A victory of sorts in time for the May 9th Victory Parade, the Russian Victory Day over Nazi Germany. Things may come to a head in Ukraine. Now is the time to, to increase military support for Ukraine in the form of weapons and the time to increase sanctions on Russia put the pressure on right now. And I think they need to move. The German government is in fact working fast and hard to consider its options for restrictions on Russian oil sales.
0: Now let's take a break and talk about our partner, Athletic Greens.
2: I started taking Athletic Greens because, you know, who hasn't put on COVID pounds and it's become part of my
0: morning routine. It's One scoop in the water and I shake it up and then I start my day that way and I'm feeling so much better. I sleep better. It has all the vitamins,
2: 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. They send you the whole kit with the bottle so you don't have to do anything except Pour one scoop into the pot bottle. They provide add water and shake it up.
0: To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of supporting vitamin D and five packs, five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash kremlinfile. And again, that's athleticgreens.com dot com slash kremlin file to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
2: Ambassador, um, a few weeks ago we saw, um, you know, Poland wanted to transfer fighter jets to Ukraine, and then we saw this very strange public, you know, kind of spat between Poland and uh, U.S. and U.S. blocked the transfer of the jets and then it kind of disappeared. Do you know what is happening currently? And, you know, what was that about? Why um, U.S. did not want Poland to transfer the fighter
1: jets into Ukraine? That was a mess. That was a... Everybody messed that one up, okay? Burrell messed it up by speaking publicly. The Americans messed it up by sending mixed messages in in public. There was clearly a dispute within the U.S. government, and we were saying yes and no at the same time. Typical American fashion, when when we can't make up our mind. And then the polls got mad at the mixed messages and went public with their own proposal, irritating some in Washington. Everybody made mistakes. Nobody made mistakes out of malice or bad faith. We're having to make decisions and deal with issues that we weren't prepared to deal with. Now, I understand why everybody said what they said. But folks, you know, we have to, we all of us, all of us have to up our game in this situation. If the Americans, if we don't think that sending MIG-29s is practical, a debatable issue, but I don't want to litigate that now, and I appreciate that there, are, arguments can be made on both sides. If that's the decision, then just make that clear and start talking about and doing what we can do. I'm really not interested in arguments coming from the US government about escalatory dangers of sending weapons to Ukraine. Just stop. That's the wrong argument. What I want to hear is what we can do. And I'm beginning, you know, I, I actually think that the weapons flows to Ukraine are pretty serious right now. I think we're not speaking in detail about everything we're doing, and that's right. So I think the issue was, A, unfortunate, B, a distraction, and C, misleading, because everybody focused or obsessed about it. Um, and the real weapons flow, the, the actual weapons flows are, are, are going on. I wish it were more, but there's quite a bit of it. Also, the U.S. in the run-up to the war absolutely nailed the intelligence. We knew what they were going to do, but we and we got it as right as the U.S. government got the Iraq war wrong in the in the run-up to the war. But happily we were wrong about the military course of the war we thought the the russians would be in kiev within 72 hours we didn't see we didn't we didn't foresee what would happen happily unfortunately we got the run up to the war right but fortunately we got the actual conduct of the war wrong But we didn't think, if we thought the Ukrainians would be overrun, then we didn't think that providing weapons to Ukraine was any good except for long-term resistance. But that's not true. We've seen the Ukrainians successfully turn back the Russian offensive in the north. Now the Russians are concentrating their forces and going to launch an attack in the east. It may be a more organized attack, less diffuse it may be successful. We don't know. But it is not futile to help the Ukrainians resist. Therefore, we need to do so. Either best case, the Ukrainians can actually defeat the Russian offensive. Or they can fight hard enough, and the Russian gains can be limited enough, the Russians decide to actually negotiate. In a serious way. Now, then there are all kinds of problems that will arise. What terms will Ukraine accept? What will the United States do with respect to security guarantees? What about the lifting of sanctions, which will surely be a Russian demand at the outset? Problems, but those are not the worst problems to have. And maybe it may be upon us soon. So we need to be leaning forward with all the help we can provide to Ukraine so that either the Ukrainians can win, win by not losing, win by blunting the Russian offensive sufficiently that Putin has to accept terms acceptable to Ukraine, or that the Ukrainians hold off the Russians sufficiently that the terms are not going to be great for Ukraine, but sufficient that an independent, sovereign Ukraine emerges. You know, one of the options, a a historical precedent is Finland's winter war, right? December 1939, Stalin attacks Finland, uh, confident of victory. He's got a communist government waiting in the wings. And the Finns give the Soviet army a bloody nose. They defend themselves successfully. The Russians regroup, attack. The Finns are ground down. They have to sue for peace. They lose territory. They save their country. And the Finns and the rest of the world looks at the Winter War as a strategic success. They saved their country. The Soviets never communized Finland. We're not talking about post-communist Finland. Right? Never happened. So, you know, is it's up to the Ukrainians to decide what's acceptable to them, not us. Not us. We ought to help them. We ought to back them fully so they get the best deal they can get. And the best deal may be really turning (laughs) turning back the Russian offensive in a successful way. That'd be great. Best case.
2: And that is one of you know my my frustrations with Europe European and U.S. policy is they did anticipate that you know Kiev would fall without understanding who Ukrainians are, and it's like you know time and time again, these decisions or forecasts are made without actually taking into account. Uh, you know, of what is happening in the region. And anyone, I mean, I remember, I mean, I'm Ukrainian, and I could tell you I've said it a thousand times with, you know, sophisticated weapons or with broomsticks, every Ukrainian will fight for their land. I mean, they will do what they need to do to defend their land because it is their existence. And, you know, and people, for some reason, didn't understand that. And you even see with the refugees, yes, we've had Millions pouring out, but there's also been a percentage of refugees heading back in to help Ukraine. So I mean, you know, and and yeah, so uh, that's you know the why uh, Russians have gotten such a bloody nose to date, as far as their military strategy not being able to be executed, is because of the strength of the Ukrainian people. On top of of course, the weapons and support from europe and u s and u k and you know, but I think you know the people cannot be discounted how every single Ukrainian citizen you know came to aid to fight for their country and to do what they can do to make sure that they don't lose their country to Russia because they don't want to go back to Russia. Nobody wants to go back to Russia.
1: I agree. What the Russians, the Russians believe their own propaganda. They believe that the Ukrainian nation did not exist except as a fascist creation based on the Soviet propaganda of what the Western Ukrainian resistance um, to Soviet rule was like. Okay. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. You know, there's no need to, need to tell either of you. The background to Putin's charge that y- y- Ukraine is run by Nazis and he's got to denazify it. This is a transplant of Soviet-era propaganda about Western Ukraine, combined with czarist-era denial of the Ukraine, u- Ukrainian nation altogether. It's a kind of ugly stew. And then you have this violent fascist coloring of these arguments, the the You know, recent articles in the Russian press are about like this. And they did not understand that the Ukrainian nation over the last generation has crystallized and crystallized in a democratic pro-European form. Look, I don't idealize the Ukrainian system or the government. And I I doubt you do either. But... For all their faults, they are fighting for their country. They are fighting for, as they see it, freedom and national existence. And by the way, Ukrainian national identity has crystallized in a democratic, multi-ethnic form. It sure might have been otherwise. Yes, there are right-wing fringe Ukrainian nationalist groups, but they're not running the country. They're politically marginal. You know, this is a country. Everybody's, you know, points out that Zelensky is Jewish, but I also remember the Jamala, the winner of the Eurovision contest. What was it, 2016, 2015? Was embraced as a Ukrainian national hero, a cultural hero. She's a Crimean Tartar. She was, and the winning song was about the the suffering of the Crimean Tartar population at the hands of Stalin. I was in Kyiv the day after she won and she was being celebrated as a Ukrainian cultural icon. This is not the sign of a narrow nationalist, an ethno-nationalist definition of Ukrainian nationhood. Are you know, the fringe right did not get traction. Um, Zelensky was not elected on a nas- nationalist platform. He was elected on anti-corruption and peace. And that was his. That was his whole thing. That's how he won. So the the Russians can say all the anything they want about Ukrainian fascism and denazification, but it's not true. And they're they're. Propaganda is becoming more and more extreme and absurd and hateful. There are nine
2: hundred members in this far far right movement. Nine hundred. The country's forty four million. The yeah, majority it, doesn't well, even. He, the yeah. majority doesn't even know. Like if you ask any Ukrainian
1: across any town, they're like, "What? Who?" That's right. Ukrainian politics, like anybody's politics, could have gone in the dark direction, but it didn't. It didn't. So, you know, every what did, what did Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote that the line of good and evil go, runs through every nation and every human heart? It's not that Ukrainians are perfect, nobody is. The question is, How does their national identity form itself on the basis of what? What is their national narrative like? And I'm just thinking, you know, given the sweep of Ukrainian history, if Chmielnitsky came back, he would probably have to say, well, I got that wrong, looking at a Jewish wartime leader. Right? I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Zelensky's heroism, his personal courage, rallying his nation in time of war is going to be part of the Ukrainian patri- of Ukrainian patriotic memory. That's a big deal. He's risking his life. That great line when the Americans apparently offered him a way out of Kiev and he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition.
0: Right. And I've
1: had a lot of Ukrainians and Olga, you probably have heard the same. People who were wary about Zelensky or criticized his performance as president in various ways are saying, well, you know, look at him now. Look at him. We're all behind him. You know, I we'll re- was one of them.
2: <laughs> and now I am like, you know what? He's standing, he's there, he's leading, and he's doing what needs to be done. It's
1: Charlie Chaplin meets Winston, becomes Winston Churchill. <laughs> and of course, at the end of World <laughs> War II, don't forget that Churchill lost an election. That's right. Remember? That's right. He lost. Yeah. So I think Ukrainians are perfectly capable of lauding the heroism of Zelensky. And when we get to the the other side of this, then we'll see about politics. But Ukrainians, the the notion, the, the, the Kremlin propaganda notion, that Ukraine doesn't exist except as a fascist country, has been, even by Kremlin standards, is a risible nonsense. It's just risible nonsense. You know, yeah, there's a fascist side in this war, and it's coming from the Kremlin. But don't take my word for it. Read the read Sergeyev's article, you know, given prominent treatment yeah. in RAI.ru. Yep. All right. You've read it. Yep. You know exactly what I'm talking yep. about.
2: I actually have a question on that for you. (laughs) Well, if you must, it's a depressing read. (laughs) So with that article and for our, uh, you know, for two points I want to make. One, with all the, you know, Nazi slinging against Ukraine, uh, Putin's installed leader in uh, Donetsk just awarded, and it was very publicly to a soldier who was wearing Nazi memorabilia. But now to the article. So, Ria Novosti, to people who don't know, are uh, is a Russian state newswire. Plus, you know, they they have it's a very prominent main uh, outlet like Taz, um, and they published this article that was absolutely, I mean, insane. But something that uh, that Russia has been echoing for decades, about uh, Ukrainians shouldn't exist. And basically, it will almost had this undertone of calling for a Stalin-like mass killing of Ukrainians, which, again, they've been echoing for decades because, you know, they don't believe Ukraine exists and for Ukraine to disappear as a nation. Now, with this article, and what's interesting, this article came over the weekend published just as we were seeing images of the executions in Bucha, of the mass house-to-house mass killings in Bucha, the mass, the tortures, the mass rapes. So as we're getting these images coming out of Bucha, which was just liberated after Russians were occupying it, they publish an article, um, you know, calling for basically the mass killing of Ukrainians. Would this, in a court of law, put together, along with other evidence we're collecting, would you think that this would constitute genocide? Because we're seeing this like arguments over whether it's war crimes or genocide. Do you think an article like this, along with other leaders and what they've been saying over the years, along with the actions being taken of house-to-house murder of Ukrainians, do you think altogether, you know, and then today we see, you know, the the uh, a strike on a train station with refugees waiting to flee. And now we have a mass casualty event there. What do you think
1: on that? There is no question in my mind that the article, the Sergeyev article in Ria.ru calls for mass killings. You, de- you don't need an exegesis of the text. A plain reading of the text basically applauds mass killing of Ukrainian civilians because they're Nazified. Basically, it calls for the mass repression of the Ukrainian ruling elite, You know, the Nazified elite, according to the article. It's a pretty ugly piece. And it's not an obscure publication. I mean, it's given provenance. And the trouble with having a state run media is that the state becomes responsible for it. Now, is there a connection between Putin's rhetoric of denazification and the behavior of Russian soldiers? I think there is. In all wars, so- some soldiers will. Do this kind of thing. Okay. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a Russian soldier's ill discipline. The question is whether this is a reflection of actual policy. I can't say yet as a lawyer. I'm not willing to, to, you know, to, to say that it, it is deliberate policy of genocide. But given what we do know. Putin's statements, Sergeyev and other articles, and sort of lots of things being said on Russian state television. It is a reasonable assumption, or a reasonable proposition, I should say, that Russian troops are being encouraged directly and or indirectly. To commit these acts. Moreover, the actual Russian military, you know, deliberate military tactics. It includes the mass targeting of civilians. I mean, that's what it means. This notion of indiscriminate rock, you know, rockets and, and bombs. It's not indiscriminate. It's deliberate targeting of civilians. We know this. I mean, they're they're not they're not trying just to hit military targets. They do hit military targets, but there's more of it. War crimes certainly, genocide. I I don't. I'm very careful about about expressing an opinion, a legal opinion, but there certainly seems to be enough to open up an investigation and pursue it. It to me as a policy person. I am most interested now in more weapons for ukraine and more sanctions against russia right now to increase the pressure on russia on the eve of what putin i suspect putin regards as a fin- <laughs> final offensive in order to give him enough conquered territory to claim a vi- victory and maybe end the war on may 9th. maybe maybe not the best outcome is the is that the Russian military offensive goes as badly as the Ukrainians can make it with our help. And that Russia has to settle on terms acceptable to Ukraine. That is where our emphasis should be. Ukrainian resistance is not futile. Now, let this sink in, because I don't think people understand this basic fact about the war. Russia attacks Ukraine and the outcome is not clear. It is not clear that Russia will prevail. It may. It could. Mariupol could fall. The Russians could take more territory. They could claim a part of of Novorossiya and make that the basis for uh, uh, declaring a ceasefire. That's possible. You can even argue it's more possible than other outcomes, but it is not inevitable it is not inevitable the ukrainians could resist successfully we don't know it is a re- it is reasonable to support ukrainian resistance by providing weapons because they may they may succeed there is a moral people used to argue and the biden administration resisted sending weapons to ukraine on the on the grounds basically that no matter how hard Ukrainians resisted. The Russians would win. Therefore, there was a moral hazard of help encouraging the Ukrainians to fight on when victory was impossible. That was wrong. That was wrong. The Ukrainians are not fighting a lost cause. They're fighting a cause where the outcome is in doubt. And if it is in doubt, then we ought to be doing everything we can to 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 bend the arc as much as we can. There may come a time when Zelensky has to settle. Okay, let's let's be honest about that. The Finns look at the, the winter war as a strategic success, and they're right to do so. They're proud of what their grandfathers did to save their country. We're not yet there. Okay, we may get there, and we have to respect Zelensky. All right, but the Biden administration has been consistently skeptical about Putin's intentions in the negotiations so far. They have not done the American thing of embracing them and then encouraging the Ukrainians to be, you know, quote reasonable. Not at all. They have suggested, the Biden people have said that the Russians don't seem serious, which to me is the right judgment. That could change. Right now, it hasn't. And we should focus on support for Ukraine. There are some people in the administration, expert in this issue, thinking of Celeste wallander the finally nominated assistant secretary of defense I know her because she was the Russia's senior director in 2014 and she was shall we say really good on this issue she's now responsible you know in on the policy side the provision of weapons and she really knows this the military side I mean, she's a serious expert in this. So that, well, you you know, you you may, if you don't know her, take my word for it. But, you know, her reputation is pretty tough minded. And skillful. So that's what we ought to be putting our way.
0: Should the Russians take Mariupol and and this area, and we hope that this is not, know what will happen. um, Could... Putin be further emboldened to go forward into other areas? Or do you think that it would stop there? I know this is a what-if question and not exactly what we like to do, but we are afraid of, let's say, spillover into other nations, Poland, for example, um, and no, uh, outlying areas, or no.
1: I understand the concern. I understand the concern. And I certainly think it is a good idea to strengthen NATO's military military presence in its eastern flank neighbors. Okay. So just flat out. Yeah. I mean, the Baltic states, Poland, don't forget Romania. So absolutely do it. You know, make sure that we are not simply deterring or showing a presence, but able to defend. So that's one. Bottom line, do it. Two. I'm not sure that I think Putin would, would would dare attack NATO members. Look, as the Ukrainians said, we're fighting alone, and it's not clear he can handle just us. The Polish military is, is you know, that's a serious, th- these people are serious, okay? And then there are American forces in Poland. The Baltic militaries are tiny, but there are now American forces and Europe. European NATO member for West European NATO member forces in those countries. There's no, there's no little green man scenario that works. Um, a Russian, you know, do we think the Russians right right now are going to be capable of mounting a sudden assault across Lithuanian Poland, you know, across the Suwalki gap? I have my doubts. But don't mis misunderstand me. I'm not saying because I have my doubts that we shouldn't strengthen our presence. We should. We should also remember our advantages. The Russian economy is going to be hurting badly. The Russians, I'm not sure that Russia's position is as strong as the Kremlin claims. We need to increase the sanctions and keep them on until there is a settlement acceptable to Ukraine. I mean, if Zelensky says, look, I don't love this deal, but I accept it. I want security guarantees, but it, you know, to get this deal, you can take off your sanctions. Not going to do it all at once, shouldn't do it all at once. You do it phased and conditional, and there are all sorts of things that we could get into about that. But until we get there, increase the sanctions, put them on, squeeze them. Yeah, let's do it.
0: We're on board. (laughs) I
2: have one final question. (laughs) Um, Just, I mean, just from my own perspective, my worry is, and, you know, we in the West like to put everything, you know together neatly and everyone's putting this war on Putin and his regime and yes he ordered it we know this and you know yes his generals are responsible but the acts we're seeing coming out of Bucha coming out of you know Mariupol I mean there is so much evil that you can't even I mean this is not even human acts there's human traits missing And there is no military doctrine that says to rape three-year-old kids and then murder them or to rape women and then burn them. I mean, this is just terrorizing people. My worry is, you know, even with the Putin regime, like say he does get weakened, that we don't embrace Russia back. And I am, I told you earlier, I'm Ukrainian. I'm also half Russian. I'm appalled at what I'm seeing inside of Russia, appalled. They are getting the information. They know what is happening. Maybe not the images that we are seeing, but there's something wrong there. And we're hearing the intercepts of, you know, soldiers bragging that they just murdered a family. And then on the other end, inside of Russia, it is, oh, what did you steal out of there? What are you sending back home to us? Do you think the problem is bigger than Putin? And do you think going forward, our foreign policy should, you know, reflect it until there is a a, a, like some kind of change in the thinking of the majority of the Russian people that we do not ease sanctions and kind of, you know,
1: go back to normal business? We will never go. As long as Putin is in power, we will never go back to relations, even as they were before. February 24th, much less before 2014. It may be possible in the aftermath of an acceptable settlement to work. not I can't say work with Russia, but to have a more stable relationship with Russia. But we are never going to have the kind of reset relationship that the Biden administration Biden administration, thought possible at the beginning of this year. While Putin is in power, the relationship will be chilly. Just as it was chilly a lot, as long as Stalin was in power. And I'm using the comparison deliberately. And I think then there is a question of what happens afterwards and what kind of leadership replaces Putin, and we don't know. I do not believe that Russia cannot be better than Putin. I think it can be. But we can't make wishing the hope and we can't embrace the next ruler unless that leader shows us something more serious than what Medvedev pretended to show us.
0: So caution, caution, exactly afterwards, caution, caution,
1: but don't give up hope. I don't think the Russians are condemned to live down to their worst traditions. Ambassador, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for your service to the country and for everything you've done.
1: All right. My pleasure. Good talking to you. And slava, Ukraini. Hey,
0: everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by
1: Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.